Okay, should we ready? you ready to go? Just a slight disaster. Here we go. Yeah, ready. <laughs> Welcome to the EuropeLex podcast. My name's Ewan Healy, and with me, of course, is my fantastic co-host, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi there. Yeah, I'm good. How are you, Ewan? I'm all right, thank you. Quite tired after all of the electoral events of this week, but feeling feeling all right. Yeah, just so crazy. And then, uh, I mean, England, you're in Scotland. I assume you're under uh, strict lockdown measures where you are? No, we, we are the part of the UK that isn't under lockdown at the moment. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... It's just overwhelming week, but still for politics nerds like us, um, a feast. Yeah, and speaking of feasts, this podcast is no different. Um, we've got a really exciting on the flip side segment about parties in Cyprus coming up later on, and Gabriel. After that, at the end of this podcast, is going to be joined by the European Green Party Secretary General Mar Garcia to talk about green politics in the year twenty twenty. It's pretty exciting. Very, very super interesting to. To speak to her. But first, we've got news, haven't we, Gabriel? Yeah, we've got a lot of news. There's been a lot of um, electoral events over the past um, two weeks that um, deserve more attention than um, than they've got um, for evident reasons. Um, so I'm going to kick off by discussing Lithuania. Um, so Lithuania held runoff elections in 68 um, of the country's 71 single-member constituencies. And those were the constituencies where a candidate did not receive a majority in the first round of elections um, a few weeks ago. Um, these comprise around half of the national parliament. Uh, with all the results in, the center-right Homeland Union uh, Lithuanian Christian Democrats have secured a clear first place with 50 seats in total, ahead of the governing Lithuanian Farmers and Greens Union, um, who won 32 seats. So they sit with the, the Greens in the EU parliament. Um, the outgoing coalition, made up of the Lithuanian Farmers and Greens Union, the center-left Social Democratic Labour Party, and the self-proclaimed Polish Interest Electoral Action of Poles in Lithuania Christian Families Alliance, nailed it, um, fell to 38 of the 141 parliamentary seats in total. The Electoral Action of Poles in Lithuania fared especially badly this time around, falling to just three seats in total. The second round saw some quite dramatic um, defeats. Um, Lithuanian's Prime Minister, um, Saulius Gvernelis, lost um, his seat, which is in um, in Vilnius, to a member of the Homeland Union, uh, although he will remain in the national parliament in the end uh, through a list seat. After the first count in the northeastern city of Utena, uh, Social Democratic Party leader uh, Gintautas Palukas um, was locked in an exact tie with a Homeland Union candidate. So you think the U.S. elections tie exact tie in the city of Utena. Um, following multiple recounts there, uh, Palukas lost out on the seat by just six votes, um, although he um, was also elected to the national parliament um, in the end uh, through a party list. As it usually goes with um, two-round elections, turnout was particularly low uh, in the second round, reaching only 39%. Uh, it is, however, a slight improvement uh, on the 38% turnout recorded in the second round of the 2016 parliamentary election. 
The new government of Lithuania was formed just as we started recording this, pretty much. Um, and as expected, given the result, um, it will be a center-right coalition consisting of um, Homeland Union, the Liberal Movement, and the Liberal Freedom Party, uh, with former Homeland Union presidential candidate um, Ingrida Simonita nominated as the next prime minister. Um, this will be the first government led by the Homeland Union after eight years in opposition. And notably, the new government will mark a break from past male-dominated or even all-male cabinets, as um, Shimonite will become Lithuania's second um, woman prime minister. Um, her expected coalition parties are both led by women as well, and she has pledged that women will um, comprise at least a third of her um, cabinet that's now being formed. A very eventful election in Lithuania. Can't believe people have been focusing on other things. Definitely. The second region we're going to talk about Today, where there's been an election, is in Portugal. That's the Portuguese autonomous region of the Azores, or um, Azores. Uh, also, where regional parliamentary elections were held on the 25th of October to appoint its 57 representatives. The Azores are made up of eight volcanic islands situated in the North Atlantic and have around 250,000 inhabitants, if you didn't know where they were. So it doesn't feel very European, but it's still technically in Europe because they're part of Portugal's domestic territory. Uh, Since 1976, they have been classed as an autonomous region after a failed coup aiming for independence. The result of these elections were a major surprise for political spectators, commentators, and even the participants themselves, with the Socialist Party's hegemonic rule being seriously threatened after over 20 years of government for them. There's also been a consolidation for uh, a centre-right party bloc um, and... There's also been three new political parties entering the regional parliament for the first time. The centre-left Socialist Party got 25 seats, five less than the previous election, and four seats short of a parliamentary majority. In second place, and a possible contender to form the next regional cabinet, is the centre-right Social Democratic Party, who obtained 21 seats. And the Christian Democratic CDSPP maintains third place, though losing one seat. On the left side of the regional assembly, the Democratic Socialist Party left bloc keeps their two seats from the previous election, while the left-wing coalition CDU, not to be confused with the German CDU, of course, becomes the biggest loser of the night, receiving its worst ever result and crashing out of the parliament. Joining the parliament for the first time, as we mentioned before, is the right-wing Chiga, electing two seats and rising to the position of the fourth biggest political party in the Azorian Legislative Assembly. The Animals' Right Party, PAN, and the Liberal Initiative both elected one seat each as well. Another surprise of the night was also the election of the monarchist and conservative party, PPM, who gained two seats in the archipelago for the first time. A state of fragmentation of the parliament uh, leads to an unclear path to a regional government like the Azores has been used to for quite some time. While initially there's been assumptions of a compromise between the Socialist Party, the Christian Democrats and the Animal Rights Party, lately there have been hints that indicated the possibility of a right bloc led by the centre-right Social Democratic Party and composed of the Christian Democrats, the Liberals and the Monarchists with a confidence and supply agreement from Chega. Such a scenario would not only represent a shift of historic proportions in the islands, but a major political development in Portuguese politics, as the centre-right would break their cordon sanitaire around Chega and open up a precedence perhaps for other places in the country for them to work together. This scenario is not, of course, welcomed by everyone, with Pan saying that they will not support a government that includes anti-democratic forces. Now, while snap elections can't be called within six months of the first election, it may very well end up there next year so many crazy elections 
with <laughs> with difficult results. Um, so moving on then from the far west to the far east of the um, of the countries we we cover to Georgia. That's the country again, not the state. <laughs> um, and last weekend there were parliamentary elections there, as um, some of you will know. Um, the incumbent centre-left Georgian Dream Party sought to become the first party since the country's independence in 1991 to win a third successive term in government. The election was um, heavily influenced by a protest movement in the country uh, that sort of uh, emerged last summer, sparked by the visit of a member of the Russian National Parliament uh, in the country. Uh, the protesters demanded the government's resignation uh, at the time and um, for reform of the mixed-member proportional system that had previously allowed Georgian Dream to win a massive majority uh, in the parliament on less than half of um, the vote. The second demand saw some um, level of success, uh, and after a lengthy negotiation process, a new electoral system was introduced earlier this year in which 120 of the 150 seats in parliament are elected by proportional representation, with the remaining 30 seats elected by single-member constituencies. This new system increases the proportionality of parliament and makes it difficult for any party to win um, large majorities, which um, which was the whole point. So um, I guess that's a part, partly a victory there for, for them. Uh, the system also introduced an upper limit on the number of seats any party can win, with no party being able to have higher share of seats than their share in the proportional vote, plus an extra quarter. So when election day arrived, uh, the Georgian electorate voted very similarly to the last parliamentary election in 2016, uh, which meant that in the proportional vote, uh, Georgian Dream fell from 49% to 48%, so um, very high, um, while the main opposition in the center-right United National Movement remained on 27.1% of the vote. Um, it's around 20 percentage points behind. Um, Georgian Dream swept every electoral district in the country, uh, bar one in the north of the capital, uh, Tbilisi, where the United National Movement um, gained a plurality. We won't know the full result until um, November 21st, when a second round can be held in the single-member districts, uh, where no candidate won uh, over 50% of the vote. That said, Georgian Dream are expected to sweep most of these districts, but in practice, the upper limit introduced by the new electoral system will limit Georgian Dream to around 90 seats, uh, making up 60% of the national parliament. So still um, quite a comfortable majority there. Um, this will mark a considerable drop, though, from the 150 seats won by the party in 2016. Uh, and it does deprive them of um, a super majority they've enjoyed um, over the last four years. The last election we're going to talk about today are the elections in Moldova who went to the polls on November the 1st for the first round of their presidential election. The incumbent president, Igor Dodon, and centre-right candidate Maya Sandu managed to pass to the second round, setting up a rematch of the 2016 presidential election where Dodon was elected. Sandu did succeed this time, however, to significantly overperform her polling and receive around 36% of the vote, mainly winning in the capital, Chisinau, and in the central part of the country, while Dodon was a close second on 32.6%. Dodon received fewer votes than expected, as a lot of his former supporters voted for Usati, who came third with less than 17%. Other candidates included National Conservative Ivanov, who received 6.5%, and centre-right Nastase, with 3.26% of the vote. 
Notably, there was a historically high turnout from diaspora Moldovans, with nearly 150,000 people voting up from 67,000% in 2016. 70% of Moldovans abroad voted for Sandu, uh, overwhelmingly in in Europe and the USA, and 17% for Usati, who came first in Russia. The second round of this election will take place on November the 15th, with pro-Russia and left-wing nationalist incumbent hoping for a repeat of 2016 against pro-EU and pro-NATO centre-right candidate Maya Sandu. Sandu has secured the official or unofficial support of a lot of other candidates, with Ivanov potentially backing Dodon, though not directly. The result may have an impact on the political system as a a whole, with parties and candidates demanding snap parliamentary elections in the coming days. We will, of course, cover the elections and all developments in Moldova, Portugal and Georgia on all our platforms. Indeed. Um, And now let's uh, move to Germany, where uh, the CDU leadership election uh, is still going on. (laughs) Um, so you'll remember two years ago, uh, Angela Merkel announced that she's resigning as CDU leader uh, and that she won't run uh, as chancellor again, uh, which is the German head of government ahead of the next parliamentary elections there in 2021. So that was two years ago. Um, she's still um, chancellor, as you all know, and she's still party leader. And they're still trying to decide um, who should succeed her. Uh, as you all also know, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, or um, AKK, was elected as CDU leader in late 2018. But to the joy of everyone who has difficulties pronouncing these overly long German names, which um, I can't count myself to, to those, um, can't say, but she did resign this year under mounting pressure um, over the lackluster leadership. Um, three men wanted to replace her in April, but then COVID delayed the election um, for this upcoming December. So, you know, it's been postponed and it's been proposed again. And it's now scheduled for January, uh, again, because of COVID. Um, so, yeah, this, this election has really had a lot of twists and turns and ups and downs. Um, and it leaves um, a lot of people, you know, within CDU a bit puzzled because 2021 um, is what's known as a Supervalia, uh, which is a year with the national parliament multiple important regional elections as well. Um, and at the moment, the CDU is stumbling into this supervalia um, without a leader. Um, others have pointed out that the COVID situation is unlikely to have changed by then as well. So it's even even more up in the air. Head of the critics is neoliberal leadership candidate Friedrich Merz, who's running for CDU leadership from um, the right of Merkel, you can say. Um, he's claiming now that parts of the CDU elite want to prevent him from becoming party president. Um, German media, in the meantime, speculate that this turmoil could lead to a situation where a future chancellor is not from the largest party in parliament, CDU, uh, but from potentially the smallest party, which is CDU's Bavarian partner, CSU whose leader, Markus Söder, uh, has become increasingly popular over the course of the pandemic, even beyond um, Bavaria. Just before we mention our next story, just to let you know that we're going to be talking about abortion, so do skip if that's something you need to skip. Now, from Germany, we're going to go across to Poland, where on October the 22nd, the Polish Constitutional Tribunal, controlled by the ruling Law and Justice Party, ruled that pregnancy termination due to birth defects, which make up around 98% of all legal abortions in Poland, are unconstitutional. The decision caused mass protests in the country just after the release of the judgment, and the Polish government 
just like the current president of the Polish Republic, Andrzej Duda, uh, welcomed the ruling, uh, with Duda saying abortion for eugenic reasons should not be allowed. That's his language. Uh, I believe every child has a right to life. That's what he said in an interview. On October 30th, nearly 400,000 Poles across the country took part in anti-government protests. According to the Polish Women's Strike, who were the organisers of the protest, more than 100,000 people got involved in the biggest demonstration in the country in the capital, Warsaw. According to some historians, the protests we are seeing are the biggest in Polish history since 1937. The backlash against the Constitutional Tribunal's decision has led the Law and Justice Party to lose part of their support. Poles are actually polling PIS or PiS down at 35%, which is the worst results they've had in quite some time. Also, according to polls, only 13% of polls actually support the decision made by the Constitutional Tribunal. The Polish women's strike have appointed a consultative council who are entering negotiations with the government about the current situation in Poland. Uh, but at the time of recording, all that the Polish government have done is delay the implementation of the court's ruling, which is actually a, a fairly significant thing for the Polish government to have done. It shows how significant these protests are in the history and politics of Poland. And on to Kosovo now. So on um, today, so Thursday, November 5th, the president of Kosovo, um, Hashim um, Thaci, a leader of the Kosovo Liberation Army during the country's war for independence uh, from Serbia, um, resigned uh, to face charges for war crimes and crimes against humanity at a special court in The Hague. The special prosecutor office that confirmed the indictment against and Tachi and nine other commanders of the KLA is part of the Kosovo Specialist Chambers and Specialist Prosecutor's Office that was set up exactly for the trials of the crimes committed by members of the KLA. Um, the next presidential election in Kosovo um, was to be held by March of 2021, uh, but with this resignation, it will most likely be held earlier than that. Until then, acting president is Vyosa Osmani, Kosovo's parliament speaker and a former candidate of the centre-right LDK for prime minister in the 2019 parliamentary elections. So yeah, a lot of big news in Europe. And we actually had discussed not talking about the big news on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah. But we thought we would just give it a cursive or a cursory discussion, uh, mention it shortly. Um, at the time of recording... Uh, there is no winner of the election, uh, with uh, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania still outstanding and have not yet been called by the Associated Press. It's been a, a crazy few days um, yeah, been... for all of us, and, and one that I think we'll always uh, remember and look back on because there's been some truly historic things. Um, the the president, uh, President Trump, has... Uh, how shall we say this, uh, done some things which will be historically significant. Um, does that sound like a diplomatic yeah, way of saying yeah, what, that talking about what he's done? Probably maybe a bit too diplomatic, but uh, but yeah, no, it's been insane. Um, obviously, I guess we all, everyone knew that with COVID and the mail-in ballot situation and uh, what Trump has been saying up until now, uh, it could be this chaotic and close and uncertain but yeah it's um it's been um it's been a ride so far and it's not over it has it has been, it has been a ride and i guess we one thing we do want to address is of course that as uh, it appeared to become very close on the early hours of uh wednesday morning president trump did uh, basically begin to assert that he had won elections uh that he had not 
And he has also begun legal challenges in a number of states to try and stop the counts mid through. I mean, the truth is, uh, we see this in Europe sometimes, but we see it from uh, dictators. Uh, that let's not really beat around the bush around this. His actions are much closer to Lukashenko than any other uh, European leader. And it, it is deeply concerning for all of us. And our colleagues over at America, Lex, uh, America Elie on Twitter, have been uh, keeping track of everything that's going on. And you should head there for, for more coverage. How do you think European leaders are going to respond to this, Gabriel? I don't know. I mean, it's still, uh, I think, I think it'll be cautious the response from 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 Europe initially. Obviously, it is such an important partner and country, and you always want to let the the process run its course, I guess. Because with what Trump is saying, it's all going to go to the courts. Um, and obviously, who knows how much of it is just talk and politics um, at this point and how much will actually come to fruition. Um, so I think everyone's being very... Um, very cautious at the moment. Absolutely. And I think for me, one of the big things that we've got to take away from this election, particularly, and I think European leaders will take away from this election, is that America has been thoroughly changed over the last four years by President Trump. What I mean by that is the polls and the electoral college projections were all uh, off again, second election in a row where that's happened in the US. And we will have the post-mortem in the polling industry uh, in the in the coming weeks, and it's going to be significant. But and uh, just to promote myself ever so slightly, I've, I've done a little bit of analysis uh, on the uh, polling errors that you'll see. And if you want to find that, it's actually not for Europolex. But if you go onto my Twitter um, at Ewan Speaks, you can uh, find my analysis there. But what I want to say is that what we've seen is is not a Biden blowout. And if we'd seen a Biden blowout, there would have been a hope amongst foreign leaders, European diplomats, um, and the European institutions that America was just going to spring back into its pre-2016 shape. Uh, Republicans that were going to be elected after Trump would be, you know, much more like uh, the sort of reliable partners in inverted commas that Europe's been uh, aware of dealing with, you know, through the Bush and Obama years. Um, But... It doesn't look like that's going to happen. President Trump's base was just as mobilized, if in, and in some parts of the country, more mobilized than it had been in uh, in previous years. And whoever sort of takes over the political movement of Trump, or even if, if Trump continues his political movement and runs again in 2024, the future of the Republican Party isn't going to stop being the more sort of America first nativist attitude, which has seen tension between the European Union and President Trump or the Republican Party. So I imagine a lot of European leaders are worried about what the next few years of European-American relations is going to bring. Yeah. And I mean, just bigger picture. I mean, with this whole thing now, so much uncertainty, Brexit coming up in like, Mm. what, not even two months. That's still uncertain as well. Mm. Obviously, there's COVID. Every, Every country pretty much is entering a second wave. Is, will it be the second out of third, f- three, four, five <laughs> waves? When will there yeah, be a next yeah, team? Yeah. yeah, so it's really, um, yeah, chaotic times. Mm. And we've seen, and we've seen the economic markets respond to that um, in exactly that way. I mean, I mean, the all of the economic markets are really struggling. If that's something that you um, see as an indicator of of uh, uncertainty, and which many European countries and European leaders do. One thing I, I did want to bring up though is this: the speed of 
of the counting. And I mean, if you think about it, because we obviously covered the EU elections a lot, and if you if you compare it in terms of size um, and the amount of people voting, like it's just crazy to compare an EU election where results come in so quickly, even though each country organizes it. Um, everything was so smooth. Uh, no, you know what I mean. And then you look at the US, where it's just um, such a mess that opens up. Obviously, it's unique because of all the postal voting. Um, but anyway, it's just um, it doesn't make the the US look too good. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the obviously the postal voting is a big element. And I think, we, but we, we've seen that also in in European elections. There has been increased postal voting in recent months, and that's governments have really encouraged that as as a COVID precaution. Um, and in the Polish presidential election, that's one thing that definitely springs to mind. And it is funny because you compare it with the European Parliament election, uh, for example, last year, when actually you've got 28 countries voting, 28 different methodologies for that voting. Um, and, you know, we still knew what the Parliament was going to look like by the end of the night, really. Um, or, or actually within a few hours after the count. And that comes from a combination of, of quick counting and other things. But also comes from the polling industry in Europe having high-quality exit polls, something which the US just does not seem to be able to do. Um, And that's always something that's baffled me, really, about why American exit polls have been so poor. And I I mean, why the polling industry as a whole has fallen short by several points this time. I mean, for example, Michigan, the polls were giving Biden a six-point lead when really he won the state by 1.2%. You know, yeah, it's insane. Th- this significant, significant mistakes. And it's funny because, or, or funny is the wrong word probably, but what's interesting about it this time is I think for most people, it's been a bit weird seeing those huge margins. You know what I mean? I think mm. um, when you look at how strong Donald Trump's base is, and in the end, it might, it might be that Biden does win and how they predicted specific states, you know, would like sort of pounds out anyway it's such a difference between being plus nine and being plus one and a half points still love polls though still love polls obviously we're europe alex (laughs) yeah we're not going to stop loving polls and and don't conflate the mistakes of the american system with uh, some very high quality pollsters in europe and uh, even the high quality pollsters in america as well um there's just been a lot of 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 poor polling really um and bad data and i suppose just to finish off, a final thought from me is that this will entrench in it the media divide, um, which already exists in America about where people get their media. The polls have been wrong. Again, people won't trust the mainstream media even more because the mainstream media love polls. And that means people will you know, turn to more radical fringes for their news. And that has knock-on effects uh, for American democracy, but also because Europe, to such a large extent, um, particularly Western Europe, takes such a lead from the United States in its political culture um, and media culture, there will be a response sort of against polling um, and against the mainstream media in Europe as well. And that's something that we're going to have to deal with in the coming months and years. Yeah, I mean, if anywhere, just in our... <laughs> underneath our posts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, spare a thought, guys, spare a thought. <laughs> The, the secret is, though, that they don't know that every interaction is, is good interaction. Yes, that is true. <laughs> it gets us further up the Twitter algorithm. Um, and even even when just before the US election, one of our posts about Europe's opinions on the election, when even uh, 
far right commentators like Ben Shapiro and others retweeted it. Well, obviously that brings an an interesting clientele into the replies of our posts. It's all it's all about the numbers. It's all about the numbers, Gabriel. Oh well. Well, we've had a good natter about the U.S. election, and we hope that we've given you at least a, a little bit of unique insight. And of course, you can uh, find more coverage of that on America LX as well. Stay tuned for On the Flip Side and Gabriel's interview with Mar Garcia, the Secretary General of the European Green Party. That will be brought to you after a word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. This week's return of our new segment on the flip side, we're heading to Cyprus, where we'll take advantage of the division of the country into an internationally recognized South and unrecognized um, Turkey-occupied North to look into two extremes that are more similar than either of them would like to think or admit. Um, We're looking at the two extreme right parties uh, in both the Republic of Cyprus and the unrecognized Northern Cyprus. Um, as well as the parallels. So in um, in the South, so the Republic of Cyprus, there's ELAM, ELAM uh, or National People's Front, which was initially set up as the Cypriot branch of Greece's neo-Nazi and now judicially ruled as a criminal organization, Golden Dawn. Um, but it's since uh, tiptoed away from associations with um, Golden Dawn um, for understandable reasons. Um, in the North, there's YDP or the Rebirth Party, uh, which represents mainly inhabitants of the north originating from Turkey, um, and which the Republic of Cyprus considers being illegal settlers on the island. Both of these um, parties are far-right and nationalist. Uh, both put national identities, so Greek versus Turkish, respectively, above the Cypriot identity. Um, and also, both have just two seats in the Cypriot House of Representatives and the Turkish Cypriot Assembly in the north. So unsurprisingly, um, both have been accused of orchestrating and um, participated in violent incidents as well. So to start off with Elam, Elam was established in 2000, citing as their goal the awakening of the youth so that it resists efforts to turn the island of Cyprus Turkish. Uh, it's ba- it bases its ideology on what it calls popular and social nationalism, echoing the tenets of Golden Dawn on race as well. Um, it opposes a federal reunification of Cyprus and takes a very tough stance on immigration as well, uh, as you'd expect. Um, The organization registered as a party in um, 2011, uh, attempting to register as Golden Dawn Cyprus, so riding on Golden Dawn's um, wave. The authorities did not accept that name, uh, so the party registered as um, Elam instead. Before and after its formation as a party, its members have appeared in protests in black shirts and marching in military formation, and there have been many accusations of attacks on migrants and leftist um, demonstrators as well during this time. Um, the organization was also accused of holding unauthorized military trainings um, on the island. Um, the party entered the House of Representatives in 2016 with 3.7% of the vote, um, which um, results in two seats. 
um, but has not been able to enter the European Parliament um, yet. The closest it, it has come to that was um, 2019, so last year, when it got 8.25% of the vote. Um, the party has also contested the presidential election twice, but only got 5.7% when it ran with its leader as the candidate in 2018. Since the beginning of the trial against Goldadonna Greece that we've spoken about before, Elam uh, has, as we mentioned, slowly started to distance itself with its leader, uh, who's called Christos Christou, a former bodyguard, actually, to the Golden Dawn leader, claiming that the two organizations have parted ways. And on the flip side, in the North, uh, YDP, or Rebirth Party, was established in 2016. It is the continuation of uh, the New Dawn Party, which was created in the 1980s, to represent Turkish-origin people living in the north of Cyprus, uh, many of which are considered as settlers uh, under international law. New Dawn, uh, New Dawn Party, had been absorbed into centrist nationalist democratic party in the 1990s. The Rebirth Party focuses on the close ties of the Turkish Cypriots with Turkey and advocates for the full independence of the North and an equal relationship with Turkey, rather than seeing Turkey as its motherland. The party too has been associated with violence. Its leader, Erhan Erikli, became known as the head of an association of Turkish people living in North Cyprus and as a representative of the North abroad, and is slightly more well-known for the international warrant against him regarding the killing of a Greek Cypriot protester during clashes that took place in 1996. Erikli had been shortly arrested in 2012 during a visit to Kyrgyzstan, but was let go after intervention by the Turkish government. Both Erikli and the second MP of the party openly supported extremist protesters that attacked the officers of a Turkish Cypriot news paper called Africa in 2018, after the newspaper criticised Turkey's invasion of northern Syria and drew parallels to the 1974 invasion of Cyprus. The protesters were connected to the Grey Wolves organisation, as well as to the Turkish party AKP's association in northern Cyprus. The party entered the regional assembly of the Republic in 2018, with two deputies and 7% of the vote. Rickley also ran for president in the north during the recent elections where he got 5.36% of the vote in the first round. We see there two very comparable uh, far-right parties with very similar structures, activities and electoral results. Uh, Both uh, equally, I guess, scary uh, parties in their own right. Yeah. Stay tuned for Gabriel's interview with the European Green Party's Secretary-General, after and some more words from some more sponsors. Europolex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. Everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of Europolex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. Hi, everyone. So um, with us on the podcast this week is Mar Garcia, uh, who's the Secretary General of the European Green Party uh, since 2014. Um, obviously here to discuss... Um, green politics and how the European Green Party and its uh, member parties are, are doing at the moment. Hi, Mar. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. It's very nice. Well, I guess, first of all, just what a 
chaotic, crazy time we're meeting at for politics, for, um, for everything. Um, and I guess what, what we'll discuss today is how Green Party politics sort of fits into the, this moment and how it's faring. Um, so obviously at Europe Alex, um, uh, we, uh, we love focusing on European uh, level politics. Um, mm -hmm. And last year in the European Parliament elections that we covered extensively, as we should, um, Green parties all over the EU made huge strides. Uh, there's, you know, this green wave everyone's been talking about. Just thinking back to that time, uh, which feels like a lifetime ago now, but yeah. what would you attribute that success at that moment to? So, um, yes, indeed, it, we did surf a, um, a green wave, which I strongly believe it's not over yet. It's rather just the beginning, but um, this is how we uh, kind of um, read the uh, very good results uh, that uh, we believe we, we got uh, in the last European elections. I mean, if you go to the uh, post-EU barometer, um, you can clearly um, like read between the lines also, or that's how I analyze it, why we uh, got uh, the result that uh, we got. And it shows that the very big increase among voters, um, so participation, especially among uh, young voters, uh, could be one of the reasons. Uh, so uh, young people massively went to vote, uh, but at the same time, the voter participation increased. And also, uh, you could also see and read a very big pro-European majority, a pro-European majority that probably we need to go back to 1983 to find, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of uh, more voters, young voters that uh, were pro-European went to vote, that were worried about issues like climate change, the future of the EU and migration. And those were the issues that the European Greens were focusing on the last mandate. So since 2014 to 2019, we really focus ourselves on a clear message on those issues. So I think that uh, this, the fact that we analyzed well and we had a clear message on things that uh, citizens were interested, together with the capacity that I believe we had to uh, fine tune uh, with the social discontent, um, I don't know. I think uh, it uh, made us the best option among the ballots. So I think that uh, that would be a good explanation of the results we got. Yeah. I guess looking back at, I guess it's, um, you know, a year and a half since then. It's obviously, first of all, just to say it's, it's complicated whenever we discuss European politics, because obviously there's the, you know, Europe-wide picture, which sort of comes through in the European elections. And then um, you have the national level politics with your member parties where obviously they're all dealing with different situations, different, you know, markets of, of voters, um, different events they need to respond to. So it's always going to be a mixed picture. Uh, but since um, then, every month, uh, EuropeLex, we do um, our seat projection for the European Parliament. And according to those, which is based on not EU specific polls, but national polls, the, the support for Greens have uh, have gone down since last spring, which you can see in uh, in quite a few countries. And it's quite interesting given the fact that green issues are still very much at the top of, uh, of the agenda. You have a lot of very vocal uh, visual movements. You have the whole Greta effect that we all know about. So I was just wondering for those parties that aren't really succeeding in capitalizing on that social movement, why do you think that is? How much of it is based on strategy that you think might should be different? How much is just the reality of the discourse at the moment? I was just interested to hear your thought on that. 
Okay, so here, I mean, I tend to differentiate about real politics and projections, yeah? I mean, um, just want to, um, um, with a lot of respect, yeah, but I do question a bit the projections that, or how those are interpreted. I also want to mention that uh, only two weeks before the European elections last year, was, there were some projections that were giving us uh, less than 50 seats, yeah? So they were wrong by more than 25 uh, seats, so, ah. so yeah one thing is real life or the real picture and the other thing is the projection let me comment a little bit on both of them on the real picture i actually do think that we are not doing bad yeah we're doing well i mean and the last elections of course they're not european elections but the last elections that we've been going through show that yeah, yeah. we could talk about the city of vienna or the north rhine westphalia elections in germany and we could also talk about the france uh, french elections yeah so, and moreover, I mean, uh, if you also like uh, zoom, uh, zoom out a little bit, uh, well, I mean, the Greens are now in six national governments, which we never were before, yes? So um, I don't think that we're doing bad. I don't think that we're having a, a problem. I mean, it's true, and I acknowledge that we have a structural problems in certain regions of Europe, yeah? I mean, we are... We are. We have challenge ahead of us in, in uh, with the representation of the Greens in southern and eastern Europe. But we're working on it, and uh, and we are. Um, yeah, we'll see how how these evolves. Yeah. Oh, moreover, it's not always straightforward that the uh, Green parties are um, or or are always. I mean, for example, we've been cooperating also with allies that uh, doesn't always show as Greens, like for example, Progressive Latvia or Mojemo in Croatia. So, those are parties or newly newly created parties that still don't have European affiliation, but uh, we have been like in connection with. So. Yeah, one thing is real picture. The real picture, I don't think, is that bad. And yes, uh, projections. Uh, well, uh, you can also go to the some um, um, parties or like uh, countries' projections, like for example in Germany, where Greens are polling uh, like uh, pretty good. Just one last remark on that is that uh, um, the behavior or the result for the Greens is always different in the European level than it is at the national level. Yeah, I have to say, yeah. and. For the better, yeah, for whatever reasons, but uh, people tend to um, vote greener in the European elections rather than in the national elections. Yeah, all, I mean, all good points. I mean, uh, we're all aware of of the the potential weaknesses um, and pitfalls with polls. I mean, even just looking, um, I guess most of our listeners and probably yourself are following the US elections right now is a good example <laughs> as well. One thing I wanted to touch on with you as well um, is the success that green parties are having at the local level. Um, so if we, we say, you know, there's a lot of success European level, um, all right, mixed picture, but still quite good on national level. But then at the local level as well is somewhere where a lot of green parties um, overperform. And a very clear example of this um, were the elections in France earlier this year that we covered mm -hmm. um, quite um, extensively. So I just wanted to see what your thought on that is. Why do you think more people are open to voting green um, for their local representation? Mm -hmm. um, and is there anything you can, that, that green parties can learn from that when campaigning on a national level? 
So um, that's how I read it, yeah? As the Secretary General of uh, this, uh, let's say, um, European umbrella organization, um, when I look at my family, yeah, I tend to uh, not forget, yeah, that the the Greens are, are... are a very young family in historical terms if you compare them to other European or like political families. Yeah, if you compare us to the uh, uh, socialists or the uh, communists or the conservatives, I mean, uh, we are a, an ideology that was born in the uh, late 60s and, uh, you know, it's taking us, yeah, our time to. Uh, to uh, build and become solid, but we've done it very quickly compared to the rest uh, of the uh, European, or like, sorry, not European, but to the rest of political ideology, ideologies or political families yeah, around us. So I think that we're doing pretty well for our age, if you understand me. But uh, I think that the first step that a um, such a young family uh, should secure is a very good local representation because that's going to be a very solid base for for the growth. Yeah. So um, I'm actually uh, uh, happy and satisfied, and I think that's a basic for a Green Party to solidify to a very good uh, local level representation, because I believe that's going to be the seed um, to become big at the national level. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I also want to maybe add that. Um, I mean, is people not voting great at national level? Or um, I think that it will come. It will come uh, with time as uh, it's probably like being starting to be shown now. Yeah. So I want to touch on the whole question of, of the EU and um, uh, Green Party's approach to the European Union. And looking back in history, there's been quite a very mixed picture and in a lot of countries, very radical shifts um, among Greens in terms of whether you're for further federalization, whether you're for EU membership, even in the first instance, um, which was sort of seen to be like quite a, um, quite a big part of the movement uh, early on, whereas now you're seeing more and more Greens being very pro-Europe, quite federalist, describing the EU as a good arena and tool in order to solve a lot of the issues you want to solve. So I was just um, wanted to hear your thoughts, if you mm-hmm. agree on this view, and whether the Green Movement can, in fact, welcome more skeptical views, uh, or if um, you're now firmly in support of how the union is developing and further federalization. Yeah, well, thank you for a very interesting question. Um, I believe that, I mean, well, the first thing that I need to say is that our family is diverse as many others. So um, everything that I will say will probably be felt in different uh, intensities, uh, depending on uh, which Greens you are talking about. But respecting that diversity, I would say that in general, the Greens have not been skeptical uh, about the European Union, or or at least uh, the European project. The Greens are, um, could, or Uh, have been maybe sometimes critical, but not skeptical about it, because I believe that the European project is a a very substantial part of our DNA. The European uh, project understood as a peace project based on solidarity, where a a political field, uh, a democratic political field that brings justice. So um, I think that uh, we have dedicated loads of efforts to uh, improve the European Union towards the project we believe it should be. And uh, we are convinced that the EU is the best window 
the best tool that we have uh, to look uh, or to uh, perform in this globalized world is the bed window in a globalized world. And you just need to take climate, for example, as an issue uh, to, um, you know, that, uh, that shows how the EU is the place to discuss uh, such a, polity, a policy. Uh, and uh, um, we were happy and welcoming the ambition of the current European Commission um, when, you know, they have designed their plan uh, around uh, the Green Deal and about uh, um, increasing our ambition to fight climate change. Change in that sense, uh, we believe the EU is uh, is the place where to um, where to uh, is the battleground. So and now we want to uh, um, you know to be there um, and also like push for uh, this ambition to become uh, into um, into action. So yes, I, I think that um, that explains very much the position of the uh, Greens towards the European Union and uh, the understanding that we have for it. Great. I Finally, obviously, when, when, when you work at, in political science, uh, like we do, um, you always try and group parties together, place them on scales, try and measure things. Um, and in terms of Greens, as you say, they are a separate party family. They've emerged sort of outside the traditional left-right left -right scale of politics. But due to it still being a relatively small family, at least in most places, still been forced in each individual country to find its space in that, in that political environment. Um, and the sense I think many people have is that Greens have become quite firmly planted on the left side of the political mm -hmm. spectrum in most countries when it's come to decide, you know, what parties to govern with, what parties to um, collaborate with in elected bodies and so forth. I, I at least have a sense that a while ago, it was seen more as a, as a third force, a more centrist force. And with time, it's become more firmly planted on the left. I, I was interested to see if you agree with that characterization. Um, and are you even trying on a European level, if you think about it, like, can you be a centrist? Can you be a liberal Green Party supporter? Ah, this is a debate that comes again and again on this yeah. one on the labels. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> but um, no, thank you for the question. I mean, well, how would I say? I mean, I'm, we are not a reactionary force. That's, that's given. We are not a, I don't know the word in English. We would say in Spanish, desarrollista, but let's call it, I mean, productivist or developmentalist party. So, you know, aiming or seeking for more uh, at any cost. I mean, our mantra, our ideology is based on um, achieving a social and economical uh, sustainability for our societies within the planet boundaries. So we believe that uh, we need to bring justice and we need to um, pursue our values within in this planet, which is the uh, only place that allows uh, life for human beings. Yeah. So, I mean, you can label us as you want, yeah? You can label us progressive, you can label us leftist, you can label us liberals, now that the US is on Vogue. So, but I think that the best label that describes us, it's green and it's understood better more and more uh, in the sense that we don't we are becoming to a uh, moment or we will become to a moment where we will not need any other adjective to describe us yeah 
let me let me quote someone from our family that uh, I've uh, been uh, working for for a while and uh, that I have as a reference point and uh, that's Reinhard Butikofer he is an MEP from uh, from Germany he uh, said last year that greens are aiming to become the alter the alternative centrality I very much um, agree with him. Uh, why an alternative? Because we want, we, we, we question the current system, yeah? We question the system that exploits the planet and that exploits the people. So we are an alternative. But why a central alternative, an alternative centrality? Because we are aiming, we have the ambitions to represent a wider spectrum of our societies. And we believe that we are able to, and we will be able to. And we are just a start, have started this path, yeah? We represent now more and more people, not only middle class, but also people from working class and businesses. So we are aiming to occupy a wide spectrum of um, our uh, uh, citizenship or, or our society. So um, yeah, that's that's what I think that define us. So um, the you know the the debate has been there for long, but um, I tend to you know keep us like um, uh, labeling ourselves as greens and. Um, I think that it's being understood more clearly um, as we gain um, the, the trust of the citizens to represent them, yeah. Great. Um, I think that's all we have time for, Mar. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating speaking to you. We really appreciate you coming on and answering our questions and sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much. Uh, it was uh, very interesting talking to you also. And uh, here we are at your disposal. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu um, and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLX podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, and Guillermo Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. Cool. Sweet. Let's see how much of that they'll cut out, but... Yeah, we'll see.